Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Holly Brown of Island Creek Farm, a small permaculture farm located in Huddleston, Virginia. Holly and I sat down at her home on a mild day in October to talk about her origins as a farmer and what it is like to run a permaculture-based farm on imperfect farmland in Western Virginia, complete with heat and humidity during the summer and the occasional deep freeze in the winter. On less than one acre farmed organically, the farm supported herself and two interns financially while keeping three restaurants stocked with vegetables, provided 15 CSA shares, and also fed her, those interns, and her extended family. She even had enough left over to give to local food pantries. She accomplishes all of this while being married with two children and without the use of insecticides, herbicides, or any tilling. I learned all of this in our time together recording the interview, and while we ate lunch and spent several hours walking around her farm. That time together was incredibly inspirational to me, and gave me a better understanding of what we can accomplish with the right systems and support. If you have any questions after listening to this episode, get in touch. Email show at permaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. Now then, on to Holly Brown. Holly, if you could give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to farm at Island Creek Farm, and we can take the conversation from there. All right. I grew up in the garden, and my parents were homesteaders, and they did it organically, and so I was not a stranger to having my hands and my feet in the soil. And and when my husband and I got married, my parents gave us land here, and I started a small garden to feed our family, and And three years after we built our house and moved in, we had our first child. And I didn't want to leave home to work, but I needed to do something. And so my husband and I sat on the potting shed porch one evening with a couple beers and and talked about, hey, what if I start a small CSA? And out of that conversation we decided, yeah, that's a great, great idea. Now, I wouldn't recommend doing it that way. The learning curve was huge, and I have made lots of mistakes that have taught me so much. But that's how, we, that's how I started. And you say that you were kind of a child of the garden, you grew up in the garden, and as we were talking in preparation for the interview, you received a copy of John Jevons' Biointensive Gardening, Yes, inspiration, as inspiration. When I told my dad that I was thinking about going into farming, he said, oh, I have a book for you to read. And so he he goes into his library and he pulls this original typewriter font, first uh, publication of the John Jevons Biointensive Handbook. And he gave it to me and I read it cover to cover. And when I was done, I thought, yes, this is it. This is what I want to (laughs) do. So I uh, I invested in a couple wheelbarrows and shovels, and we started double digging. So that was that was how we embraced biointensive. I didn't know anything about permaculture then. Then what year did you start doing your biointensive gardening? It was nine years ago, so that was two thousand five. And then when did you get introduced to permaculture? About six years ago, by an intern, actually, <laughs> interestingly, he had been working for me off and on for years, and and he had taken like a course with John Jevons because of his work here, and he started just, you know, gathering information. You know how once you get hungry, your appetite is insatiable, and that was definitely him. For me, I was just trying to keep my head above water with a child and a farm, and and the life that demands attention. And so for, for him, as he like began to glean information and take PDCs and read books and share books with me, and we would talk, you know, all day long. And so, yeah, one of my interns. And then you say that you have taken a permaculture design course throughout I this. I have. I took um, a PDC with the Blue Ridge Permaculture Network about three years ago which I had read a lot of books prior to taking the course. And the course just kind of clarified everything that was in my head. And 
everything that we had observed here on the farm, and it made it make so much more sense. Has blending permaculture with biointensive changed your farming practices? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we used to have hot compost piles on or hot compost bins on every terrace. And, you know, we consistently double dug. Well, I don't double dig anymore. <laughs> I haven't done that for a long time. And in terms of our fertility management, we still use cover crops as the cornerstone of our fertility. But we don't we don't compost them and then put the compost back on. And we don't double dig them in either. We chop and drop. So we chop them, lay them down, and put a thin layer of wood chip on top. And within about four weeks, we have this beautiful layer of compost to plant into. It was a conversation I was having last night at the Roanoke Natural Foods Co-op that one of the easiest ways that I've ever found to build soil is just mixing wood chips with the detritus from my garden as I'm cleaning up and moving things. Just mix that all together, throw it in the paths, and then just move my beds Absolutely. back and forth. Yep. Perfect. So then you started with a small CSA in 2005. Yes. How many members did you start with then? 10. Was that 10 families or just 10 shares? It was 10 shares or 10 families. Yeah. Over the years since then, how many shares have you grown to? Well, I changed the model. After about three years, I stopped doing CSA. And part of it felt like a need to not have a predictable set of vegetables per week. You know, as my child got older and subsequently another child came into our family, it felt easier to to go to market with our product. And so I started going to farmer's market five years ago. And for me, it was really nice to just harvest what was there and take it. But it was also really nice because it got my face out into the community. And so every Saturday became talking to people about what was different about my vegetables. And back then there were no farmers at the market I was going to that didn't use spray. And so, you know, it was educational, but it was also like a bird unburdening of, of me. <laughs> and of course, subsequently, we ended up doing two markets and you know, then restaurants. And so we just, as the farm grew, the outlets to which we sold grew. So now after these number of years, are you finding that going to market and then selling through these other outlets is as functional as you want it to be relative to the CSA program? No, <laughs> but things all are, are always evolving. And that's good. Last year, I did two markets, four restaurants, and 15 CSA members. And it was just crazy. It felt like I was spread all over the place. And I worked entirely too many hours and I was gone for my children way too much. And I, I had a total freeze in the fall that made everything die. And it was like a big gift to me. Because for the first time in years, I had time. And I gained some perspective. You know, you can't look at what you're doing until you have time to look at what you're doing. And so for me, I, I was so grateful. And in talking to my husband about it over the winter, we decided to go back to doing a really small CSA so that I could be a mom, but also to stick with the restaurants because the restaurants are predictable sales. And so we've done, we do three restaurants and 15 CSA members, and that's enough right now. It has meant some income loss, but it has meant an enormous amount of free time. And I will take the time right now over the money. Your freeze reminds me of just a couple days ago uh, before I was preparing for this trip. I was, I was kind of pulling my hair out about a week ago, and <laughs> it was just my wife looked at me and said, when was the last time that you weren't moving? And it was like, I was thinking about it, it had been about four months, even though I had done some things that felt like mini vacations, I was still working, I was still, you know, writing out outlines and everything else, and just to have that, just three days of not doing anything focused to my work, to graduate school, or anything else, and just, you know taking my son on a Sunday afternoon because he's now five and still needs naps. And just laying him in bed and laying down next to him and just taking a nap for two hours. It's important. It is. I've done some interviews with Ethan Rowland of Appleseed Permaculture, and he talks a lot about the eight forms of capital. And the, the money is only one of those. And there are a lot of other pieces of that that are becoming even more valuable to me as I get to do more and more of this work. And remi being reminded that we don't have to work 60 or 80 hours a week 
that we can slow down and make other choices. Absolutely. Especially when we're, when we are sowing into our children's lives. That's time that we don't get back. No, that's correct. Yeah. So with the smaller CSA and the restaurants, how has that changed life on the farm? Because when I arrived today, you still have two interns working for you. And you said that they're paid interns and that they're, it's not slave wages. So there's still an income for them and for you through this process. What does that look like for you now? Well, for me this year, a lot of the ways in which I have seen my ability to look at something in terms of income, it's not money, but it's having time to can 30 quarts of tomatoes or having time to harvest and dehydrate fruit. You know, it's having time to invest in my family's food security Because if I'm growing great food for people, but I don't have time to put it away for my family to eat it, then then something is terribly out of line in my life. And that, for me, last year was what I came to realize. Like, it's fine to eat greens all winter, and we made it with the greens out of the glass house. But how much better would it be when you can open up the marinara sauce you made with the farm's garlic and onion and tomato and peppers and basil? in the middle of January and eat that too. So I have had time for that this year, which has meant less income, but I'm still sewing into my life. You know, I'm still saving. You have material wealth rather than financial wealth in that return. Precisely. <laughs> and we've still made money. Yeah. So that's good. It's a win-win. That's another side of someone with a family that I think is sometimes overlooked. I know some builders, and we almost joke that it's the builder's dilemma when you're building other people's houses. A lot of times your own house never gets finished. True. (laughs) Although my husband runs a roofing company, and we have beautiful roofs here, and they're all done. We don't have any leaks here at Island Creek Farm. I have a low-pitch metal roof, and we just had the snow guards put on after last year. Yeah. <laughs> Opening the door after one of the snowstorms and having a six-foot pile that we then had to dig through I in bet. order to dig out. Did you lose gutters? <laughs> Thankfully, no, because the ice dams that were building up built over the gutters. Lessons learned. Truly. Oh, that's funny. And from what you've said also, though, that the relationship that you and your husband have and the shared values and goals provide you an opportunity that you can have the spaces that you want that because of his knowledge as a builder and a roofer, you, along with your father, you, you were able to build the house that we're sitting in now. Right. That there's access to recycled materials in, your, in order to build your barn. Right. Or to build your greenhouse. Right. And those are different ways that I'm reminded that a lot of the conversation about building a farm is about the infrastructure costs. Absolutely. And like, I've talked with folks who run drip lines and other things, and it it can be extraordinarily expensive to build that infrastructure. But you've said in the conversation before we started, though, that you're not tilling. You're not using machines for your work, but you're still on less than an acre of growing space. You're providing for three restaurants and 15 CSA members. And my family. Which is another four. And then are you also providing to your interns? I do, and I also provide to my parents. Okay. And then we also have extra that I give away. I mean, we give to the Society of St. Uh, Andrews. I always get it wrong. The Gleaning Agency. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and the Food Bank in Lynchburg, too. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. So do you track the numbers of how much food you bring out of your garden or do you just kind of harvest and go? I wish I had time. I I feel like a, an incredibly lousy record keeper. And part of that is just being a mom and managing, you know, three other people's lives, including my husband's, who is also not the greatest record keeper either. Um, so I don't keep excellent records, but for tax purposes, we do know like income you know, how much we brought in. And last year, last year, we brought in 34,000 off of half an acre, three quarters of an acre of growing space. You know, it's not bad. (laughs) Well, that's something that Peter Bain mentions in his permaculture handbook that on, you know, I think it's one or two acres, you could provide a reasonable income for two people. If my husband were working with me, it would be different. You know, his input would give me time to be a better record keeper per se. 
But since we both have our hearts in something different, and that's perfectly fine. There are things that don't get done at this point, and I'm okay with that, you know? I know we produce a lot of vegetables. I can't tell you how many tons. I wish I could. I thank you for the candor of sharing the value of what you're producing from this space. And then thinking about all of the, as I say, the non-financial side of things, because you can put up thousands of dollars worth of food for your family through that. On top of that, like I, I don't have a friend who isn't a gym member. I don't, I don't have a gym membership. I don't take time to go to a gym. I don't have to. <laughs> my job keeps me healthy, you know? My job keeps me mentally healthy and physically healthy. So there are lots of perks on top of, yeah, the financial aspect of it that, that you've got to factor in there too. My commute is one minute. It's out the back door. How long does it take me to put my boots and jacket on? Precisely. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> it's a good life. And that quality of life, I think, is sometimes missed. I think it's a lot of times missed these days. Previous to my career as a father, I left uh, March of 2015 will be seven years since I left the normal working career because I was a stay-at-home dad for about three and a half, four years, full-time. And then I was um, keeping the kids plus running the podcast and then entered graduate school at the same time (laughs) for a while when all that was stacked up. But I think about how much the quality of life improved because I was an IT manager before. I was on the road for 60 or 70 hours a week. Right. Lots of weekend hours. And it was one of those, one time I, my boss at the time asked me, he's like, when would be a reasonable time for you to leave your house in the morning and get home? Mm. And I told him, well, if I leave at seven and get home by seven, that would be okay. Mm. Then it was, well, I'm still gone for 60 hours a week on that schedule. Right. And how much time can you have then with your family? Not enough. No. And just being able to sit and have conversations about your goals. Yeah. And your plans. Yeah. Previous to your career as a farmer, what were you doing? I had gone to Virginia Tech and gotten a degree in landscape and turf management. And I was working for a wholesale plant nursery when I got pregnant with my first son. Troy and I also had a landscaping business that we ran together for five years. And um, yeah, a lot of hard work that wasn't mine. <laughs> so... Yeah, I prefer this hard work that is mine. And as we were discussing earlier, you're up at 4, 4.30 in the morning and out the door during the growing season? Yeah, I'm out the door at first light. So at uh, summer solstice, it's 5 a.m. And then it changes by the week as the sun disappears. And now we're getting closer to winter solstice and I'm happy. <laughs> it means the workday is much shorter, but I still get up at 4.30. What is your growing season like? Could you walk us through what that experience is like for you? When it begins, are you starting nursery starts in your greenhouse? You know, are you growing from seed or are you buying in plants? Do you save seed? What is all that like? I save seed, but not from everything. We do a lot of the salad crops and the brassica salad crops. I save a lot of the allium seed. I am attempting to move further toward perennial crops so that I don't have to deal with a lot of the seed stuff. But I usually start bedding plants in the glass house beginning in January, but we grow all the way through the winter, except for last winter when everything died. (laughs) But we have enough undercover winter growing space that I can keep restaurants happy which is really important if you're consistent with the restaurants, then it's easier to get the restaurants. So I do grow all winter, and that means starting flats pretty consistently of lettuce and spinach, but things like mash and arugula and all that stuff, you know, it'll carry through nicely, Um, Claytonia. But anyway, so the prep for the main season starts in January with things like leeks and and early brassicas and then in March the interns come and we start doing like bed prep and turning in winter cover crop and stuff like that potatoes and peas go out early brassicas go out under row cover which row cover has been one of my concessions I passionately reject all things like input but the row cover has been extremely helpful with insect control and also to like help me buffer the frosts and the freezes. So 
We start um, the CSA at the end of April, beginning of May, and run it through the end of October. But there are people who will carry through the winter, like the people that come out here to pick up. Some of them pick up at other farms. Um, But the people who will drive out to the farm to pick up, I'm happy to provide them with greens and roots through the winter. And that, that keeps me keeping everything harvested cleanly, but it also keeps them in fresh local vegetables, which I think is important considering 85% of what we're eating fresh in the winter comes from California. Through the winter, you mentioned greens and roots. What all are you providing for your customers who come out to the farm during the winter? We have beets, carrots, turnips, radishes, sweet potatoes, potatoes, Then there's like leeks and scallions, salads. We have like Asian salad blend, arugula blend, lettuce blend, which would have some other things like mosh and salad burnet and chervil and claytonia and, you know, anything that will grow when it's really cold, I'll put it in a salad. We try to consistently give parsley because that's extremely nutritious and everybody can use parsley. Collards, kale, mustard... What else is out there? Chard. And I underplant all the big perennial crops with things like chervil and cilantro so that I can like double yield the space. The kale is underplanted with mosh. The collard beds are bordered with parsley so that I'm just consistently maximizing the small amount of space that we have to grow in in the wintertime. Really truly is blending biointensive with permaculture. Yeah, and even in the greenhouse, all the beds are hoogle mounds, so so yeah. When you mentioned roots and greens, I was expecting a list of like maybe 10 things, but I think you, re- you, you went through 20 or 25 that I could follow. Everybody's always amazed at how much you can grow here in the wintertime, but you know, typically we don't get lows that are two degrees like we did last year. And that stuff, like a moderate low, like even 10, can be buffered with two layers of row cover in the greenhouse. And we don't heat our greenhouses. I will never, ever heat my greenhouse. I want to talk with you about some of the concessions, because you've mentioned several through here between, you know, you did make a concession for the row covers, but you won't heat your greenhouses. But before we get there, I would like to talk some about what perennials you do currently grow. And what are you thinking of moving towards as you move more towards perennial production? Okay. Um, Asparagus is something that I have been starting from seed, heirloom asparagus. So like Purple Passion, Conover's Colossal. There's an Italian variety that I couldn't tell you the name of right now. But we have been, I've been starting those from seed every year for the last four years. And I'm getting excellent yield off of the purple passion more than any of the others. But the Italian variety is one that you can blanch and that's nice for the restaurants, you know. And I can get a pack of seeds for 350 and start about 300 crowns of asparagus. So for me, that's, you know, in terms of thinking about the future, that's a small investment for a big kickback. Um, we also have perennial leeks here. I also have a lot of different alliums that I have perennialized. The bunching onions will, I don't have to, you know, grow them every year from seed. We do walking onions and I can do the scallions from the top sets. We also have raspberries and blueberries and blackberries, currants, gooseberries. I've put in hazel. We have pecan. What else? Oh, figs. Lots of figs. Probably seven or eight big fig bushes. I've never had a fresh fig. Oh, we'll have to go scour the bush after this, and I'll see if I can find you a late fig. There's nothing like it. And last year we had buckets of figs, and then the winter killed back the eight-year-old huge trees that I had to the ground. But they came back up. It just meant that they didn't yield as heavily, and that's okay. You know, I realize some weather patterns get rough winters and sometimes not, so... You just adapt. That's why you diversify. So that's some. And is all of that within the... Yes. Just to give you a mental picture, the land here is not flat. I would never have picked this land to put a farm on, but it was a gift from my parents um, when I got married. And so I took it and we ran with it. And so it's excellent because it's sloped in terms of water, being able to harness the water that comes down. 
And we have built beds on contour and hoogled a lot of spots like that so that we can harness the water. But it also means that we have places that are just slopes. And so in the context of the slopes, we've planted dwarf fruit trees and underplanted that with insectary plants. So we also have peaches and apples and plums and <laughs> grapes and hop and kiwi and yeah. And all of that is on less than an acre. It's tight. As I mentioned to you earlier, this, this trip to Virginia has reminded me of how little land we need to do a lot with. Oh, yeah. As well as how we can think that we need a lot more than we do. No, you don't. And that's kind of the whole thrust for me, or that's one of the driving things that I want people to understand. You can do this in your yard at home, and you can grow enough food for your family to eat well all the time and to share with your neighbors. You can make a huge impact on a really small space. Jerusalem artichoke, that's another one of those perennials here. I'll keep thinking of them, <laughs> but I'll stop talking about them. We can just continue to intermix them throughout the conversation. <laughs> Two other things that I wanted to talk with you about are your concessions. Okay. The ones that you have made and the ones that you won't make. All right. The ones I won't make from the very beginning, I decided I would never use a tiller. I felt like it did not, it was not conducive to um, true sustainability and I felt like the tillage was not conducive to true soil health. And if at the foundation of the farm, the health of the soil is everything, I am not going to till it. I'm not. And so I never have. Nine years, I've never tilled. Another one of the things that I, I don't want to do is use drip irrigation. And part of that is because I wanted to be able to farm in a way that if I wanted to go anywhere in the world and teach someone how to grow food for themselves, I wanted to have credibility. And if I go and I say, well, if you do this, this, and this, you can grow food for yourself, but I have drip irrigation and I have a tiller, then they can't, they can't really identify. <laughs> but for me, I can go anywhere in the world and say, okay, if you have a rain catchment and you have a shovel and some seeds, you can grow your own fertility with which to grow your own food. And so for me, that was big. Gosh, one of the other things that I felt compelled to never buy was like plastic plug trays. You know, I don't want to buy something that I have to buy every year to start bedding plants. And we do start all our own bedding plants here. It's the only way that you can ensure that what you're putting out in the garden is organic. So my father made me flats, and subsequently then my husband bent up metal flats because, you know, he has a sheet metal shop. And so as a metal fabricator, he has supplied me with beautiful flats, different sizes that I've used for years and years and years. So those are just a few of the things, you know, and thinking about some of the things that I do make concessions on, we have to have a potting mix. Um, so I buy coconut coir to make our potting mix with. And I buy a little tiny bit of organic fertilizer to put in the potting mix. And I buy some perlite for that too. I don't love buying those things, but I've tried other, I've tried coarse sand. It just doesn't give me the loft that I need in the soil. And I've tried to make a f mix that's fertile enough without the organic fertilizer, and I just can't do it. And so those are a few of the things that we do bring in. There's one other concession that I've made, and that is when we needed extra compost, there is a man that's five miles from here who is gleaning the garbage from Lynchburg. So he takes all the food waste from the Doritos manufacturing facility and from the colleges in Lynchburg and from the paper plant and all the non-chemical building material and stumps and stuff like that. And he produces beautiful compost with it. And I feel like the product, because it's tapping the urban waste stream and keeping stuff out of the landfill and ending with a really high quality product that's five miles from the farm. I feel okay about that too. And you also mentioned that you won't spray. No, I had done some spraying for insects in the beginning and for me, like a pivotal moment was being out there after having watched an aphid infestation on the tomatoes and 
deciding to spray. And as I'm spraying in the evening, I'm seeing lace wings come out of the patch. And I, and I just thought, I can't do this. I know that since we put in the insectaries, which was about six years ago, the beneficial insect count jumped noticeably. It was obvious. And since then, I have not sprayed anything. And prior to that, of course, it was just certified organic insecticidal soap. And occasionally, I had used pyrethrum. But we don't use anything anymore because I feel like if you leave it alone, nature will balance itself. And that doesn't mean that I don't lose crops sometimes. But I would rather lose a crop and let nature figure out how to balance itself than interject my humanness into the equation and probably mess something up. <laughs> so, And I think it was Masanabu Fukuoka in The One Straw Revolution or one of his other writings talks about even when he wouldn't spray, his losses were still not that substantial when he would get an infestation. Right, precisely. You say that you've never tilled, but you did double dig. Are you still double digging your beds? No. <laughs> we double dug cover crop in in the spring and fall in the beginning. Virginia is notorious for red clay. And so our soil structure was horrible. Um, you could hardly get a shovel into the depth of the shovel. And so we did that for about three years. And since then, we have been taking the cover crop, which we still rely on for the backbone of our fertility, and we slash it and let it lay on top of the bed and then put the chip layer on. And that is enough to add that compost layer. But the beds are friable. And everything that we've done new post permaculture has been sheet mulching. And so we've built hugel mounds with then sheet mulch on top. When you were talking about your authenticity as a grower, and you know, if you have water catchment, a shovel and seeds that you can grow your own food, what kind of water catchment do you have on site? We have a 5,000 gallon tank that we got from a relative, you know, through a relative. Um, and we also have a 2,000 gallon tank and that catches all the water off my husband's barn roof. And then the gravity feeds the crops when I need to water the crops. Mind you, I don't water just to water. I water when we don't get enough rain. And only like when I transplant things to get them settled in. And we also have a couple different little water catchment ponds. Um, my husband took a Sepp Holzer permaculture course March before last, and he's extremely interested in hydrology and like water catchments. And so now his... His passion is to give me little water holes, <laughs> which, you know, that's, it's all good. We caught a bunch of crayfish out of the creek this year and put them into the water catchment to see what would happen. So that's how to be determined still. <laughs> but With the gravity feed from your water catchment, is that just gravity fed into a hose that you then walk around? You have a... Yeah, it has a main line. And then off of it are the hoses. Hate hoses, but you've got to get the water somewhere somehow and that's the easiest way for me to know to do it after having carried watering cans to try to water even just a small square foot garden it was no because when you realize that you know the rule of thumb that i was always given is an inch of rain per week during the growing season we get around 42 inches of rain in pennsylvania but it doesn't come in the at the right time same here in virginia yeah yeah we we had zero rain the month of june this year and then in the fall we also went for about three and a half weeks with zero rain. And that's not uncommon. When I was pregnant with my second child, which was five years ago, we went in 11 and a half weeks without any rain in the middle of the growing season. One of the boons for me, or one of the benefits of like having the soil be the backbone though of, of like the farm, is that there is enough organic matter that the soil itself holds a lot of water and so with the one-inch rule, it doesn't have to come down from the sky or out of my hose in order to be there. And the fact that we've hoogled the beds means that once the plants are established, they'll go deep and tap into that water reserve down there too. So it's flexible. It was one of the things when establishing the gardens at my home site, we started with um, the square foot gardening method, just as something to get us kind of started. But between the heat and humidity and the lack of precipitation in Pennsylvania, each of my, you know, three foot by three foot beds would require about nine gallons of water, or I'm sorry, would each require about six gallons of water. And I had 12 beds at the time and carrying that by hand, not a good thing. No, no, no. 
No. And, the, you know, the chip layer is great on top because it also, like, cuts the water surface tension and allows what you are putting on there to go into the bed. Um, and we also use straw. We use straw that we get from a local bed for grower that's not sprayed. And so that also helps us to hold the water into the beds, too. Plus your own contour, so the water then that does fall is going into those beds and recharging them. And when we get water in Virginia in the summer, it's usually like half an inch of rain in 15 minutes, which does nothing for the soil surface. But yes, because they are on contour, they they do get deeply to drink of that 15-minute soak. So nothing's wasted. And it only took you about three years then of double digging and growing your garden to get to that point. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my colleagues and permaculture instructors, Ben Weiss. He says that in even like a hard-packed suburban soil, where there's been just a lot, not a lot of soil maintenance and a lot of, you know, movement of equipment and people and everything else, that it's about three years in order to break up the soil enough and get it in that place. So that, that confirms the observations that I'm hearing elsewhere. Although sheet mulching is miraculous. You know, I mean, you can change the... You can change the growing space really rapidly with a nice deep sheet mulch, but it takes three years for the for the biological activity in the bottom below the sheet mulch to go up and take it back down again. And for that sheet mulch, it's cardboard compost straw. Is that the one that you are using? I've run across a couple different methods of what a sheet mulch is. For me, a sheet mulch, well, a hilga mound, of course, is chocked full of wood in various stages of decay from around here. And then on top of that, it's branches. And then on top of that, it's like wood chips so that you can then build the sheet mulch on top. Then we try to put soil back down because soil is essential in sheet mulch. And I made that mistake in the beginning. A deep sheet mulch that doesn't have soil put back in it, once it's totally composted, will end up like a hack of peat moss. If it's dry, it's extremely hard to get it wet again. But if there's soil mixed into that, the soil will hold the water. So there's soil layers, there's wood chip layers, there's weeds from the farm, there's spent hay from the farmers around here. There's a neighbor across the way who calls and says, hey, the horse stalls need cleaning. So occasionally we'll go over there and get some of her horse manure. Although I've never wanted animal fertility to be an essential part of growing, you know, the food here. But yeah, when I build a sheet mulch, it typically the green material is weeds, grass, because we do still have a lot of grass around here that my husband mows and bags when I need it. And then also, yeah, the cover crop. You mentioned animal fertility. Do you have any animals on the farm? We do. We have chickens um, and we have a, a movable chicken tractor. And actually, one of the things that we really want to bring into the farm this winter are pigs. And I have hesitated for years. My husband has wanted pigs for a long time, and I don't. I have children, and that's enough for me to focus on. And I know that if pigs come in, then I'll just have something else. But but our non-till system had Bermuda grass come into it about four or five years ago. When I took the year or the few months off after my child was born, and I had interns who were taking care of the farm, they had their hands full, and I totally understood that. I totally understand that. But the Bermuda grass that I had been keeping at bay took a root, took hold. And if you know anything about it, it produces through rhizomes and stolons, and in friable, deeply dug, beautifully fertile soil, it takes over. And so for the last couple of years, I felt like I've been running really hard with something like right on my heels that I've stayed in front of. But... I'm not staying in front of it anymore. And so like every way that I can figure out to get rid of it is just not working. And I feel like pigs is the only answer. So we're going to put pigs on small space and move them, you know, every couple days to try to get them to root up the Bermuda grass. So I don't want them for fertility. I want them for their little snouts <laughs> as tillers, none fuel-filled <laughs> chillers. So I'm, I'm semi-afraid. I'm semi-afraid of what they're going to do out there because our system is, you know, it's beautiful. It's perfect. It's these nice delineated beds. And I'm not saying that it's like clean. It's chaotic the way that nature is chaotic, but it still is orderly. And I know that the pigs are going to come in and 
wreak havoc on my small amount of human order in there. So part of me is afraid. But yes, so that will be a new chapter in Island Creek Farm. Will you be raising the pigs then for slaughter or more for use on the farm? My husband says for for sausages. <laughs> and actually, the truth is, I don't want to tend them past the off season. So the main growing space, we will move the pigs through, and this will be experimental. So the first winter that we do this, we're going to do it on the places that are concentrated heavily with Bermuda grass, where I feel like I'm in trouble, and see how it works. And if it works, that they go on November 15th-ish, and then they come off in mid-March, and only a couple of them, like three, then we'll, we'll make it a regular thing. But otherwise, this is still in the, this is in the abstract phase. And we are moving rapidly toward the, yeah, the application part. So I will get back with you about what happens. I have a family member who raises pastured pork uh, with some of the Joel Salatin's methods. And they make lovely ham and bacon. Yes, we have two really good farm family friends that have pastured pork. And same, ditto. So, yeah, I know that there are benefits to having little piglets. My husband would be more interested in that than I am. (laughs) One other question that I had about the farm proper before asking you about the interns that you have is, we've mentioned that you don't spray and you have certain concessions that you've made and that you're raising the food in in an organic manner. Are you certified organic? No, and I'm probably never going to be certified organic. I'm not sure that certified organic equals sustainability. Now, if there was a sustainability certification, I'd absolutely jump on a sustainability certification. But I, I don't feel the need to because I, I look everybody in the eye that buys food from me. They are more than welcome to come here and see exactly what I do. And I have no interest in selling outside of this community. And so... I see the need if I'm going to buy carrots from California for them to have a stamp on it. Otherwise, the more the government stays out of what I, you know, stays out of everybody's business, I think the better off we are. From there, I was wondering about your interns. I met two of them this morning. Are they the only two right now? They are only two at a time. Max, that's as many as I need. I really don't need two, but it makes it it makes it a lot easier and it makes it a lot more enjoyable because the conversations just get, you know, more in depth when there's three people working together than when there's two. But last year I only had one, you know, so it is whatever it is for the season. I need one. How long have you had interns on the farm? Six years. Yeah. And with that, how many different interns have you had? Oh, gosh. Several repeats or? I have had the one in the beginning that introduced me to permaculture. He came back for a couple years in a row. And then I had a, another guy who came in and then I had a couple stay. And gosh, let me think here. Probably nine, ten different people. The year before last, we had some kids. I refer to them as kids. They're not kids. They're very nice young adult people from Seattle. And they had come out this way to try their hand at permaculture farming. And they got my name through the extension service and came to market and found me. And they volunteered for a year. So they came off and on really sporadically. And then over the winter, we started having meals with them on a regular basis our farm to their farm, back and forth. And they asked me in the middle of the winter then, could we really intern for you? And so then I ended up with them too. But but yeah, a lot of different people. With your interns, do they live on site with you or off site? They can. This year we're, we are working with two people who are from this county and they have the right to stay on the premises in the cabin. They opted not to for the most part. I would like for them to. It's less back and forth driving, but you know, that's their that's their choice and that's okay. It's fine. Could you share with us an idea of what a life in an intern is like, what their compensation is like between the food, you do pay them a stipend, some of the other things that you provide as well as like the value that they get from being an intern, as well as like how long is the season and what kind of hours? can a farm intern expect? Okay. The season runs mid-March through mid-November, and I need that for like season prep and then season close. 
I request that they work four days a week. When I was going to market, I requested that they work one Saturday per month. So four days a week plus one one week was five. I provide all the meals that we eat here for lunches during a work day. And typically we work heavily in the spring. You know, you can expect to work 40 hours a week in the spring. I need it. As we move into the summer, And the older that I get, the less I want to be out when it's 97 degrees with a heat index of 102. So we we start at first light, whatever that is, and we knock off by lunchtime and I feed them lunch and then they go. And for the ones that stay here, then they go spend the afternoon down by the creek in their little space. And and it's a nice little space. It's a cabin. Um... And then they can come back up and water in the evening, stuff like that. Although, you know, typically it happens and it doesn't happen. They eat dinner with us several times during the week. And oftentimes they want to cook with me. So that that's a bonus. You know, I can teach them how to cook and and fellowship with them while we're making food. We all often have extra beer in the refrigerator, so that's a bonus too. Um, and they can, of course, pick anything that they want to to eat off the farm when they're not eating with us. I ask for 35 hours a week. We try to shoot for that, and, and at the most, 40. It's not untypical for us to work 30 when it's really hot, and that's okay, you know. And then are they paid at an hourly rate, just a stipend? It's a flat weekly rate. Okay. Yeah. And if I don't work them, that's my loss. You know, <laughs> that's okay. I think it's fair that way. And then you agree to the 35. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's a little less, but you have a, a shared agreement. Yes. And you're able to pay yourself and two interns off of less than an acre. Yes. That still blows my mind because of my grandfather was a farmer and I don't remember the acreage of the farm that he farmed, but it was at least tens of acres. Mm-hmm with his tractors and everything else out there growing commodity crops in the in the 50s and 60s. And then even now, a lot of the permaculture conversation is, I need to find five acres or 10 acres or 20 acres so that I can go have a homestead. You know, if a couple was going at this together on a space this size, they wouldn't have to pay anyone yeah. except themselves. I mean, so I only need an intern because I don't have my husband working here. And again, that's fine. Right. We both have our passion and that's totally fine. It's not that we can't work together. It's just that we don't happen to. So I need an intern. But yeah, space space is only restricted in your mind. <laughs> You've given us a great overview of both Island Creek Farm and what it's like to be a permaculture farmer using biointensive techniques in a small space. You know, recycling, building your own home, and a lot of the other things that you've done here to create what it is that you wanted. In drawing this conversation to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Oh, don't be afraid to try anything, anything that you read. I have said that my learning curve was huge when I started. If I could have done it again, I would have thought, hey, I want to be a farmer before I had a child, you know, and gone and done internships, but it just didn't work that way. And I'm here to tell everybody that it's okay because it's given me the confidence to make mistakes and to tell people that it's okay to make mistakes. You'll still grow food. You may not grow exactly what you set out to grow, but you will still grow food and you will still grow yourself and you will still be changed by the experience and change everybody around you in your process. So grow, just try it. Don't let fear hold you back. I have so many volunteers who come out here and they know nothing and they're so afraid. And I'm like, you know, this garden is not a perfectionist garden. Nothing about the plants require perfectionism. They just require some effort and a little bit of love. And if you've got a little passion and a little, a little, an ounce of nurturing in you, you'll be okay. So just try. Thank you for drawing this conversation to a close with that message. I really appreciate it. I know how easy it is for us to get caught up in a need for perfection or our own fears. So thank you, Holly, for this conversation today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And that was Holly Brown. 
you'll find a link to the Facebook page for her farm in the show notes for this episode at thepermaculturepodcast.com. My time with Holly really stuck with me, even now several months later, because this was the first time I saw a human-scale farm operated with hand tools that was integrated and operating in the way that I would want to run a farm when I consider creating my own permaculture demonstration site. Her farm showed the possibilities that I read about in books like Peter Bain's The Permaculture Handbook, and in a way that really carried through in her wanting to remain true to her own ideals, while still being, produ- while still being productive and bountiful. Holly invited me into the home she shares with her husband and two children, a modest place compared to many of the houses I've seen in America, more reminiscent of the ideas you'll find in the books by Lloyd Kahn, but not quite as small as he advocates in some of his pieces. In the time after the interview, she and I shared lunch together, a curry consisting of on-farm vegetables with yogurt she made from local raw milk, and a salad containing something like 12 different kinds of lettuces. We then walked around and she showed me her successes and failures, including two different Gothic Arch greenhouse frames, one of which was strong and supportive, so much so that Holly demonstrated by doing a pull-up on it, and another one that wavered a bit in the wind. If anything, visiting Holly gave me hope that we can build productive permaculture farms that feed people and provide a right livelihood, that we can use little urban, suburban, and rural spaces to grow the food necessary for all of humanity in an ecologically responsible manner that can make a real difference. From that, she and the conversation with Rick Williams inspire me to do even more in this space, the virtual realm, and in the soil. We can create a beautiful, wonderful world for ourselves and all life on Earth. Trips like this to visit Holly at Island Creek and the Virginia tour as a whole that allowed me to speak with Trish Wright, Rick Williams, and Lee and Dave O'Neill are all possible because of your assistance. Your gifts to the show allow me to keep this podcast going and to meet with people and bring back all the information and photographs that go with it. Please consider making a one-time or ongoing contribution by going to www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. As long as I am able, I will be here to assist you on your permaculture path. So please reach out to me if there is any way that I can be of service to you. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. The next episode, out on Wednesday, February 18th, is a conversation with the timber framer Patrick Shunney about how to get started in timber framing and his appreciation for the skill and artistry of the craft. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.